This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. So financial identity is really a disembodied form of your actual real identity that circulates really without our knowledge, but constantly informing what institutions and creditors think of us. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're talking about credit scores. How did we get them? How do they work? And why do we need them? For almost everyone, the recipe that decides your score is pretty mysterious. Recently, there's been some news about changes to how our credit reports are recorded. Millions of Americans are going to get a credit score bump now that most medical debt won't appear on credit reports. As of this March, Americans carried an estimated $88 billion in medical debt. That's according to a report by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Beginning in July, paid medical debt will no longer affect consumers' credit scores. That means if you've paid your medical bills, but the debt is still showing up on your credit report as a strike against you, it'll no longer be counted. Right now, those bills, paid or unpaid, stay on that report for seven years. We all know that we need a good credit score to get a loan or a mortgage at a reasonable rate. And we know part of maintaining a good credit score means paying your bills on time. But beyond that? Yes, Stephanie, I mean, it is very confusing. Let's begin with the basic thing that, where do I find my credit score and my credit report? I just tried to look mine up, and before I knew it, I was nearly buying some kind of credit monitoring service when all I wanted to do was just get my credit report. Keep in mind, this is the information you need in order to get a car loan, in order to get a mortgage. This is not unimportant stuff, and I wouldn't say it's 100% clear. Well, basically everything you just said is why I can't even remember the last time I looked at one. And to hear you describe it, I think I know why I've been reluctant to take a peek in recent years. I can't imagine, you know, what it is that each of us is supposed to be on the lookout for, how often we're supposed to be looking at our own credit reports. I honestly, apart from just Googling it and diving in, I don't really know where to start or what I'm supposed to be doing. We wanted to find out how the system we have today came to be. Credit reporting started in the 1840s, so much longer ago than many people take for granted. That's Josh Lauer. He's an associate professor of media studies at the University of New Hampshire and author of Creditworthy, a history of consumer surveillance and financial identity in America. Lauer says to begin with, credit scores were organized to keep track of business borrowers and had little to do with consumers. It all started with a man named Louis Tapan. 
Tappan was a prominent figure in New York City during the 1830s, and he and his brother ran a wholesaling business. And during the Panic of 1837, their business took a major hit. Lots of creditors were suddenly without money. And what Tappan was concerned about was the fact that borrowing and defaults could cause this major cataclysm and could ruin businesses, including his own. He collected massive amounts of information from local attorneys throughout the U.S., like letters about the borrower's reputations, their habits, and their trustworthiness. And eventually this system became popular and other merchants wanted to subscribe to get information about distant borrowers. And that's the origin of the modern credit report. Lauer says the first consumer credit reporting began a few decades later, when local credit bureaus started spreading. There were hundreds and then thousands of credit bureaus devoted just to tracking consumers. And these were spread out throughout the country. And if you were a department store or a grocer or another merchant in a city and you had a new customer that you didn't know, you could either call the local credit bureau for information and receive a credit report over the phone. Or in some cases, especially early in the 20th century, you might have a credit rating volume that you can look at to make determinations about the credit risk of the person who wanted to buy on credit from you. Today, our credit scores are compiled by three private companies, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. How did we go from having all these small local credit bureaus to the three we have today? Josh Lauer says two things happened. Larger bureaus started buying up smaller ones, and the kind of information that was being collected changed with the digitization of records. During the mid-1960s, a few different credit bureaus began to transform these paper files into digital records. Credit reporting up until the 1960s and 1970s is this very much connected to the idea of personal character that your morality, uh, your goodness and virtue as a person is attached to your willingness to pay debts. It might include information about sexual promiscuity or, or affairs. It might include information about alcoholism or mental health issues. It also included information about sexual orientation. And by the time that these credit files were computerized, much of that information was taken out and credit reports became much more stripped down in terms of just the numbers of credit accounts, uh, the amounts owed, and whether the account was open or closed. Making credit scoring a digital process had some benefits. One of the things that's interesting about how consumer credit applications and credit risk were determined in the past is that if you wanted to open a department store charge account, for example, you sat down with a human credit manager, a man, usually a white man, and he would take the credit application from you. He would actually fill it out. And of course, you can imagine all the problems that might occur with this in terms of subjective bias and other social biases. And it, it was a problem. But it was not just a problem in terms of discrimination. It was a problem in terms of how slow and inefficient this process was. So especially after World War II, when you begin to see another big boom of consumer credit expansion, there aren't enough credit managers to go around to take all these applications and to sit with each customer. So credit scoring becomes a solution to this particular problem. But removing the human from the process didn't solve the problem of social bias in credit reports. It's impossible for a credit model to be completely unbiased because the data that is used 
comes from society, which includes bias. One of the big problems with credit scores is that they're infected basically with historical data that is unfair to minorities and non-white people. The accumulation of generational wealth over time has redounded to the benefit of Caucasians primarily and to the disadvantage of African Americans in particular. And we can see this reflected in things like the median credit score for different racial and ethnic groups today. So for example, the median credit score for whites and Asians is on average higher than the median credit score for African Americans and Latinos. And there's no real explanation for that based in race. It's really a reflection of discrimination historically. Josh Lauer says there have been efforts to make credit scoring more equitable and fair since the 1970s. For example, it's illegal to consider factors like race, gender, or marital status. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other variables that could be closely associated that end up having a disparate effect for protected categories. And some of the you know, most notable examples are things like zip codes and whether or not somebody rents or owns or whether somebody has a long or short employment history. So in the case of employment, women sometimes have children and they leave the workforce for periods of time so that their work history looks truncated or looks different from male counterparts. Credit reports saw more developments, including the FICO score in the 1980s, which became the industry standard and whose credit scoring algorithm was pretty close to the one still used today. But for all those changes aiming to simplify the process, a lot of people are still totally lost when it comes to actually understanding their score. One of the problems of knowing why you're creditworthy is knowing what, what the metrics are, what the criteria are of creditworthiness. If you have no debts, then the credit bureau has no record of your past behavior of making payments. And a similar kind of problem occurs for people today, that you can't have a credit record and have a good credit record unless you have credit. So not having any debts can actually be a problem. And so certainly one of the pieces of advice that people who talk about credit scoring would give today is that it's good to have a credit card, you know, to open a credit card when you can when you're younger and to use it responsibly and to keep it open over time because that builds credit history. I think another misconception that a lot of people have is that, you know, you're supposed to pay off your credit card in full as soon as it's due, you know, never carry a balance. And yet I've heard people say that's actually not correct, that you want to carry a balance in order to demonstrate that you can service the debt or the loan. Is that right? You certainly need to demonstrate that you can play the credit game, that you can have a credit line and pay on time. And not just one credit line, but be able to manage multiple credit lines. And again, this whole process is opaque in the sense that individuals don't know exactly you know, what input or what variable is going to affect their credit score in one way or another. So you've talked about some of the problems with the current system and some of the ways that companies have tried to reduce biases and improve credit scoring. What would you say remain the biggest problems with the credit score system that we have now? I think the biggest problem has to do with regulation. And it's not that credit scoring is not regulated. Credit scoring is probably the most regulated and the longest regulated consumer algorithm in the United States. The problem though is that it's very difficult to know what regulators are doing or to know if regulation is effective. So because credit 
models are proprietary intellectual property, the commercial firms that develop them want to, one, keep them secret from their competitors, but two, also want the public to feel secure that their algorithms are not discriminatory. Regulation should probably include a dimension of public reporting and public disclosure to let us know what it is that regulatory agencies are doing and convince us that we should trust in these systems and the regulatory agencies that are overseeing them. Coming up, what are some improvements we might see soon to this confusing and some say too secretive system? That's after the break. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about how we came to have the three main credit bureaus we have today. Now let's look at some new proposals and how they might impact consumers. Chi Chi Wu is an attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. She focuses on credit reporting and medical debt. We talked to her about the new ways that debt will be reported. You go to a doctor or you go to a hospital And like a year later, you find a medical debt for that visit on your credit report. It could be for a copay or deductible that either overlooked or you're like, why do I owe this? And you didn't pay it. You were trying to like straighten it out with insurance, straighten out with the provider. And because so much time went by, so many months, it was referred to a debt collector. And then the debt collector slapped it on your credit report. 58% of the debt collection items on credit reports. 58% are for medical debt. This affects 15% of consumers. It's a huge problem. According to Wu, the change has the potential to reduce the amount of this medical debt by up to 70%. But she says it's only a small step. Frankly, this would not have happened if you didn't have a strong and aggressive Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that said, we're going to take a look at medical debt because we don't think it's a great indicator of creditworthiness and, you know, why is it so much of it showing up on credit reports? Credit reporting is a completely private enterprise in the U.S., and Wu says consumers bear the brunt of that. It's not just that you only have three companies in this market, but these are three companies where consumers have no control, right? We are not the customers of the credit bureaus. We're the product. We're the commodity. And we have no choice. You want a mortgage in this country, you have to deal with Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. You can't say, you know what, I I can't stand Equifax. They lost all our data back in 2017 in that data breach. I'm never dealing with them. I'm only dealing with TransUnion and Experian. You can't do that. You have to deal with all three. 
Recently, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau took action against one of the big three credit bureaus, TransUnion, for using deceptive marketing to get people to sign up for credit monitoring products. At a press conference, the CFPB director, Rohit Chopra, said, TransUnion is an out-of-control repeat offender that believes it's above the law. That's really strong language from a regulator, but it's completely warranted. These companies do not treat consumers well. In a statement, TransUnion called the claims meritless and said they in no way reflect the consumer-first approach we take to managing all our businesses. Beyond the upcoming changes to reporting medical debt, the Biden administration previously expressed support for a new federally-backed credit bureau within the CFPB. So far, that hasn't happened. The plan had called for including non-traditional sources of credit data, like rental history and utility bills, in calculating credit scores. Wu says that adopting a public system could help. In other countries, credit reporting is not done by private companies. It's done by government agency. And yes, government agencies have their flaws. They have their problems. But at least they're accountable as part of the government to voters and to policymakers. I think a public credit registry is the best solution. Obviously, there are other options to try to improve the situation that are less than that. And then certainly you have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as I mentioned earlier, and, you know, they could take steps to help. They could, for example, create an ombuds program for the hundreds of thousands of consumers who have credit reporting complaints and disputes. But for now, there are a lot of people with questions about how to best navigate the current system. For that, we spoke to Rod Griffin. He's the Senior Director of Consumer Education and Advocacy for the Credit Bureau, Experian. We started off talking about the kind of mistakes people make that can get them into trouble. You know, people have life events that affect them, accidents, illness, medical, you know, debts that, that they may owe that can derail things. We're starting to hear more from people who are concerned about things like inflation and just the fact that as things get more expensive, it becomes harder to manage the, the debts they owe, especially if they're stretching the limit. I'm worried that we're going to hear more about that in the, in the coming months. Another issue some people face is being credit invisible or not having enough credit history. Remember, as Josh Lauer told us in the first part of this episode, you need a financial history to get credit. Communities of color and Hispanic and black communities in particular are adversely represented in credit invisible community, about 26%, in fact, which is you know, substantial. Experian has recently launched some services to help. We create a credit report that is essentially blank at that point other than having identifying information. But the key to unlocking financial services that are lower cost, that are more traditional, really is having a credit history established. Once that credit history is established, you're able to do other things that can Fill it out. You, know, you can write your history from there. And Experian Boost gives people the power to report their positive cell phone payments, their positive utility payments, and even their streaming services to their credit reports at Experian. And that way, if they don't have a credit history or had a very short credit history or have had some issues and they're trying to rebuild their history, we found that those are very credit-like relationships. 
If you're trying to improve your credit score or even just work up the nerve to look at your credit report, Griffin has some advice. The first step is get your credit report. I mean, don't be afraid of what's in it. You know, if you get your report, you'll know where you are. It's usually not as bad as people think either. So that's that's generally somewhat good news. You should get the number, which is nice to know, but you should get the risk factors that go with that score, which tell you what from your credit report most affected it. That's what's really important because that lets you identify the things you need to work on. The first step is taking ownership of your finances, not letting them own you. So Charles, experts are telling us that we should take ownership, that it's you know in part our responsibility to be aware of what's happening on our to our credit, look at our credit reports, stay on top of these things. But it feels like it's almost just too much to ask of people, that it'd be better if we just didn't have a credit score to worry about in the first place. Well, Stephanie, there's a part of me that admits I'd rather not worry about my credit score. But, you know, I'm also thinking, what if I were a big mortgage company? And I'm sitting there saying, we're about to give somebody a million dollar loan for that brand new house. I kind of want to know if they can pay back that million dollars. I mean, as much as we love to hate credit scoring, I think it is a necessary and vital part of how our economy functions. Doesn't mean the system can't be improved, but I think it is probably necessary for most lenders to have a fair expectation of our ability to pay back a loan. Well, I mean, there's a there's a sort of forward-looking element, and then there's this backward-looking element. And your credit score is really, you know, the kind of rearview mirror of your financial life. It's like, you know, where have you been and how have things worked out for you in the past? Whereas in some sense, you know, evaluating credit risk and looking at a, a borrower is a forward-looking exercise. You know, what kind of job are you in today? What do you make? I mean, you can do underwriting and assess risk without necessarily going to the Wayback Machine. I asked Josh Lauer, what are the chances of getting rid of credit scores entirely? I don't think it's possible to eliminate credit scoring at this point. Our entire economy depends on the ability to have you know, quick, fairly priced credit access. Whether or not they are run and designed by commercial firms or whether a government agency participates in this is a different question. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review. As you probably know, it's the best way for other listeners to discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question you'd like us to answer, drop us a line or send us a voicemail at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Josh Lauer, Chichi Wu, and Rod Griffin. To learn more about credit scores, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch produced by Best Case Studios. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz Lockhart. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. 
Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the Market Watch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.